0: behind the knife the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field welcome back to behind the knife's oral board review series my name is patrick georgeoff and i'm joined today by uh, joe church Joe Church is a good friend of mine. We trained at the University of Michigan together with General Surgery, and uh, Joe is now doing his Pediatric Surgery fellow, Fellowship at the University of Michigan. Joe, say hello to all the listeners out there. Hey, everyone. I appreciate the opportunity to be part of the program. Yeah, well, I'm happy Joe's here because today we're going to be talking about pediatric surgery. It's right in his wheelhouse But before we get started with pediatric surgery, uh, Joe and I just finished the uh, Osler course today. We thought we'd give you some unsolicited uh, um, uh, opinion on the course. Uh, I personally felt uh, that it was excellent. I'm actually really glad I took it. Uh, It's expensive. I think we paid around 800 some bucks for it. Uh, Two and a half, really pretty much three full days of super uh, intensive review. Uh, Hour-long sessions uh, with Osler course faculty. Most of them are experts in certain topics who would um, put uh, other uh, residents or or fellows at this point, I guess, up in front of the classroom and uh, put them through different oral board scenarios, and you would listen in. And at the end of each uh, scenario, they'd give feedback and talk about uh, details of that particular topic. Uh, Certainly uh, tons of information uh, jogged my memory on a lot of things, pointed out things that uh, I needed to work on uh, in advance of the test. So, I, uh, in, in summary, I'm happy I, I took it, uh, and I think it was money well spent. Joe, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree. I think uh, the benefits of the course, first of all, it just puts you in the mindset of the structure of the oral boards, which are obviously a stressful experience for all of us, but everything is case-based and is supposed to be exactly as the boards would proceed with people up in front, and so it gets you in the right mindset. The information, for the most part, is stuff that we all learn during residency, um, but it does a really good job of identifying places where you need to brush up uh, areas of weakness that you can study at night or before the
0: test. And overall, I agree. I'm really glad I took the course. Yeah. So we haven't taken it yet, <laughs> so we can report back later. Uh, and no, we're not getting paid by Osler, but uh, again, just our, our honest opinions on, uh, on the course. So I mentioned today we're going to talk about pediatric surgery. Uh, in the SCORE curriculum, the core diseases and conditions for pediatric surgery include abdominal mass, acute abdominal pain appendicitis, lower GI bleeding, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, inguinal hernia, intussusception, malrotation, Meckel's diverticulum, and umbilical hernia. There's a slew of advanced uh, disease conditions that I won't go through. Uh, The core operations and procedures include inguinal hernia, uh, intussusception, malrotation, Meckel's diverticulectomy, pyloromyotomy, and umbilical hernia repair again a long list of advanced procedures that we won't go through today and so to start off uh, we'll do pediatric or pyloric stenosis and so these babies typically present around three to five weeks of age they have non-bilious again non-bilious forceful vomiting they're the hungry uh, babies that want to eat right after they vomit uh, typically otherwise healthy and so uh, there is a broad differential you want to consider for non-bilious emesis. And that includes uh, intolerance to formula, uh, reflux, antral webs, and or gastroparesis. I think the top of the list would be formula intolerance and GERD. Uh, Joe, on exam, what do these babies present with? So the classic finding that you may remember from studying from the
1: ab site is an olive mass in the epigastrium or right upper quadrant. But it's also important to keep in mind signs of hypovolemia in these kids, including a Sutton Fontanelle or dry mucous membranes, which would indicate a need for resuscitation. Uh, the workup of these kids initially uh, involves uh, laboratory studies uh, in conjunction with uh, fluid resuscitation. The classic uh, metabolic derangement uh, that you re- may remember is a hypokalemic, hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis. So you definitely want to be sending off. Uh, a set of electrolytes Um, and the uh, imaging study of choice is an abdominal ultrasound which should identify and measure the pyloric channel a channel uh, with a muscle thickness of four millimeters or more and a channel length of either 15 or 16 millimeters or more depending on whether or not they're older or younger than four weeks is diagnostic of pyloric stenosis You also want to uh, be able to see if you have any fluid movement uh, passing through the channel. Uh, Patrick, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, preoperative and uh, preoperative treatment of pyloric stenosis? Yeah, so
0: you mentioned preoperative specifically, right? So you're on the boards. You're gonna, you don't go right to surgery. We all know we're going to do a pyloromyotomy, but you got to resuscitate this first, this patient first, and we're going to hydrate. So uh, in the pediatric world. Uh, which I'm long removed from. We're going to give a 20 cc per kg bolus. Okay. Again, that's a 20 cc per kg bolus and then start maintenance uh, uh, fluids at a four to one cc per kg per hour uh, rate. Um, I was told by Joe just now that you're going to start with normal saline. uh, uh, That's appropriate in these children. And once they start peeing and you think they're perking up and getting hydrated, then you move on to D five normal saline with 20 a K again. 20 cc per kg bolus 4 to 1 cc per kg per hour maintenance rate and start with a normal saline until they're peeing and then d5 normal saline plus 28k we're going to follow up labs uh ensure that our electrolyte imbalances are corrected uh and then one of the key numbers we look out for uh uh, bicarb Uh, and so we typically want the bicarb less than 28 somewhere around that uh before we proceed with surgery uh so uh uh, how do you uh joe how do you perform a laparoscopic uh and again uh, most surgeries on the boards are going to be an or, uh, open operation uh, that you'll describe uh pyloromyotomy is certainly a laparoscopic procedure it's one of the relatively limited numbers of, of rap, uh, laparoscopic procedures uh, joe pyloromyotomy
1: yeah this is a procedure that is very commonly and routinely performed laparoscopically Uh, An open pyloromyotomy, just to be clear, would be a perfectly acceptable answer for the boards as well, and if you have a preference, if given this case on the boards, it's totally acceptable to describe either technique, as long as you know one well. For the laparoscopic approach, generally we'd use three ports, specifically an umbilical port, and then two stab incisions uh, in uh, either uh, uh, in the right uh, and left hemiabdomen. Step one, once you gain access to the abdomen, is identify the pylorus And then you make uh, a serosal incision, usually using electrocautery, but this can be done sharply as well. But just through the serosa, you're not actually trying to incise the muscle sharply. This incision should be carried over the pyloric muscle, just onto the stomach, and then barely onto the duodenum. It's the duodenum that's going to be most prone to injury or leak. Upon incising the serosa, you then actually bluntly split the muscle fibers. When this is done successfully, you should actually see bulging mucosa within your pyloromyotomy. And the way you confirm that you've performed an adequate myotomy is to grasp each serosal leaflet with the muscle and kind of move these opposite each other, and they should move independently. This is a good sign that you've done a thorough pyloromyotomy. One of the last ways to test if you've done a thorough pyloromyotomy and that you haven't injured the mucosa underneath is to ask your anesthesia colleagues to push about 60 cc's of air through the NG tube You should see the air pass through the pylorus. You should also not see any bubbles coming from the pylorus. One thing I'd add is that we're probably used to, in most cases, of gastric outlet obstruction placing an NG tube up front. These kids, you actually don't want to place an NG tube early preoperatively because it would worsen their chloride losses and their metabolic alkalosis. But just before induction, it's safest to place an NG tube to decompress the stomach and avoid aspiration. Patrick, can you talk to us a little bit about your post-operative management of one of these patients?
0: Yeah, so uh, from what I understand, we start feeding the kids around 12 hours, roughly, post-operatively. Is that true? Uh,
1: 12 hours. Feeding practices, I'll bet if you asked five pediatric surgeons, you would get five different preferences. All right, what are you going to say say on the boards? Uh, On the boards, I'd probably start feedings within about six hours. You could say
0: six to 12 either would be right. As what happens when the baby still yakking two days, three days later?
1: Honestly, uh, usually it doesn't take that long. It's very common for they have some post-operative emesis. Uh, these uh, these kids almost universally do get better. And so it's important to actually reassure parents that some spitting up, some throwing up early on is okay. Generally, you start at about a quarter or a third of whatever their goal feed would be. If they tolerate that, then with the next feed, you advance, say, like up another quarter until they're at goal. And as long as they tolerate feedings, it's pretty routine for these kids to go home within 24 and sometimes 48
0: hours. Okay, so a stepwise advancement, a few spit-ups is fine, reassure the parents, and they can get home within a couple days. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that, to keep in mind that I didn't mention is uh,
1: that may come up on the boards is if you have a leak from your pyloric mucosa.
0: Ah, that's a good one. So that's a, a great complication. So they give you that complication, and, and how do you treat it?
1: So the classic answer is to, to first of all, if you're doing this laparoscopically, convert to an open procedure. That's always a safe move anytime you have an intraoperative complication during minimally invasive surgery. You would close the serosa only. You can do this, uh, do this in a single layer. And then rotate the pylorus towards you and do a similar procedure, another myotomy on the posterior aspect of the pylorus. At this point, then uh, you should have an adequate
0: myotomy. Nice. Nice. All right, let's move on to malrotation. So this is a typically healthy newborns who present with sudden onset bilious emesis. Remember pyloric stenosis, non-bilious. There's a specific differential that came with that. This is bilious emesis. They have feeding intolerance. Um, Kids may present later, though, as well, uh, with chronic type uh, symptoms. Uh, Probably for the boards, healthy newborns, sudden onset bilious emesis. Uh, What's the differential for bilious emesis? This includes uh, duodenal atresia or jejunal atresia. Uh, nectites and endocolitis, meconium ileus, Hirschsprung's disease, or imperforate anus. Um, On exam, Joe, again, what do we find?
1: The exam findings can be somewhat nonspecific. Again, you're looking for any signs of dehydration, assess things like the fontanel and mucous membranes. You want to see if the child's abdomen is peritonitic. The key thing here is that uh, bilious emesis is a surgical emergency until proven otherwise as opposed to the presentation in pyloric stenosis where if it's non-bilious you assume that you have some time for for a little more workup and resuscitation why is it a surgical emergency the catastrophic result of malrotation is complete mid-gut volvulus and if you delay surgery and you get into the operating room late you can necrose the entirety of your small bowel be TPN independent for life which is obviously completely devastating. So everything about mid-gut um, volvulus and malrotation uh, stems around that concern. Okay. How do you work it out? So the workup uh, includes, uh, again, your basic labs, your, your CBC, your electrolytes. An upright film may be helpful, uh, but is generally nonspecific. And if you see downstream bowel gas, that does not necessarily rule out uh, malrotation or mid-gut volvulus. Your study of choice, what they're going to be looking for in the board exam, is an upper GI. Okay. Now, a normal upper GI should, should show the course of the duodenum uh, with its C-loop crossing back across the midline, also ascending to the level of pylorus. Officially, with an upper GI, they should also do lateral views and confirm the duodenum course is retroperitoneally. This would be a normal upper GI. The finding you'll likely get on the boards in a case of malrotation is a duodenum that does not cross the midline, does not have its classic C-loop. This would be diagnostic malrotation, and in the case of bilius emesis of war exploration. So along those lines, Patrick, can you can you take us through the abdominal procedure in the case of malrotation and suspected volvulus?
0: Yeah, so this is an open procedure. Uh, do a transverse incision, okay? For all the people who've been in adult world for a long time, babies get cut open in a transverse fashion, Uh, So one finger breath, typically these transverse incisions are either one finger breath above or below the umbilicus. That's right? That's right. Okay. So uh, take your pick. So I'm gonna go above for the lads procedure, uh, a transverse incision. Uh, I would do first and foremost, examine the bowel. if there's malrotation, I'm going to perform a counterclockwise detorsion of this mid-gut volvulus. What's that called, Jill, You said turn back the...
1: Yeah, the, the mnemonic here is you want to turn back the hands of time, which I still have to remind myself on a, yeah. on a daily basis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and so you certainly want to expect for bowel compromise. If that bowel is dead necrotic, you have to cut it out. Okay. Um, in regards to uh, the... the um, malrotation type of procedure. So there's gonna be some lads bands. These are bands that expand for, uh, extend from the right upper quadrant to the cecum. Okay. Pulls that cecum up to the right upper quadrant, abnormal position. We're going to uh, divide that, uh, band, that lad band, and we're going to return the large bowel to the left side of the patient and the small bowel to the right side of the patient. And what that does is that opens up the, uh, the mesentery. It broadens that mesentery, um, Probably for the boards too, we'd describe a prophylactic uh, appendectomy, uh, and um, I think
1: that's it. Anything else you want to add? No, I think that I think that was really well described. The the topic of appendectomy may be a subject of debate. I think for, for the boards, a totally safe thing to do historically. What would happen is then if you didn't remove it, these kids would get left sided pain, and no one would think it would be an appendix.
0: Great. Okay, so next up is a. You know, I I thought it was a tricky topic. It actually can be pretty well simplified. This is abdominal masses. So there's three abdominal masses in the pediatric world you need to know about. Um, uh, Again, only three. And uh, Joe's going to walk us through. Joe, what are those three masses?
1: So the three masses that will come into play for the oral boards are nephroblastoma, uh, which is basically a Wilms tumor, um, neuroblastoma, and hepatoblastoma. These would be the three that would be in your differential if you get a child... Uh, with an abdominal mass the presentation in all these cases is frequently similar they're very commonly asymptomatic aside from a child actually having abdominal mass you'll get the story of parents giving their toddler a bath and noticing that their belly is distended when they feel the belly it feels firm but the kid isn't complaining of any pain so the story doesn't always necessarily help you as far as your diagnosis goes and sometimes neither does your, your physical exam. Um, there are some uh, tests you can run essentially to differentiate between these these masses. First of all, with abdominal masses, an ultrasound is a good upfront imaging study. This will differentiate between a solid versus cystic mass, with cystic masses being more likely to be benign, or a solid mass is more likely to potentially be malignant. But solid masses essentially are going to need cross-sectional imaging. And I think for the purpose of the board's, The safest answer is to say a CT scan. I know we're always hesitant to use ionizing radiation in toddlers, but it's more important to get a clear diagnosis as to what this mass is. In addition, there's different laboratory studies you can send that relate to each uh, possible mass that would also help potentially differentiate between them. In particular, uh, with a neuroblastoma, you want to send uh, urine, uh, HVA, and VMA, as these are frequently catecholamine-producing. That would lead you down that path. And for hepatoblastoma, you want to send uh, serum AFP. The AFP is elevated in over 90% of cases. So let's talk a little bit about the findings that we might see on CT scan. So the most common scenario you would probably get in your oral boards is a fairly large mass, something on the order of maybe 10 centimeters or greater, arising from one kidney or the other. They'll frequently give you the left kidney. I'm not really sure why. They'll sometimes say the inferior pole. I think there's a reason for that, which is probably to differentiate it from an adrenal tumor of some sort. But the classic finding on CT in this case would be a claw sign, which is basically the renal parenchyma sort of encircling the mass. So this is the classic finding on CT associated with a Wilms tumor. So if they give you that those two words, claw sign, you should be thinking Wilms. The other thing to evaluate on the CT is to look for any signs of tumor thrombus in the renal vein or extending into the IBC. On the flip side, uh, hepatoblastomas, as you might imagine, would be large salad lesions arriving, arising from the liver. If they tell you it's arising from the liver, your diagnosis is essentially made. But it's also important to inquire about signs of metastatic disease, including within the chest. And then with neuroblastoma, these can arise from any number of locations. These are tumors of neuroendocrine origin. Um, the most common in the belly would be suprarenal, but these can be primary thoracic anywhere along the... Um, along the sympathetic chain, etc. On imaging, you will frequently see uh, calcifications within the tumor. And one way to potentially differentiate between a Wilms and a neuroblastoma is that Wilms tumors tend more to displace other organs or structures, whereas neuroblastoma are more likely to invade or encase adjacent structures. So let's start by talking a little bit more about Wilms tumor.
0: One thing you could do a certain scan for the neuroblastoma, right?
1: That's a really good point, Patrick. So theres a, there is uh, some more adjunct imaging that's important in neuroblastoma that, that plays into staging and management. So these frequently enhance on MIBG scan. Right. So this is a good uh, a preoperative study. Um, it also would uh, be looking for any signs of metastatic disease. Um, These can also metastasize to bone. In fact, osseous mets are
0: fairly common, so you want to get
1: a bone scan
0: as well. What if the examiner is prompting you to biopsy uh, a Wilms? So you have a tumor with a claw sign, it's surrounding the kidney, and they want you to buy. They're asking you, you sure you don't want to biopsy it? you sure you don't want to biopsy it? Are you going to biopsy these masses, especially Wilms? Let's start with the Wilms.
1: Yeah, don't give in. Do not
0: biopsy a
1: Wilms tumor. So I don't think anyone would be expected to know the intricacies intricacies of staging of any of these tumors but the most important thing to know about Wilms is that if you rupture the tumor capsule which would include a percutaneous biopsy you've immediately upstaged a patient. Stage one Wilms does not require adjuvant chemotherapy or radiation but if you biopsy that tumor you've now
0: moved them to a stage three. Now how about uh, uh, so a so liver uh, presumed hepatoblastoma yeah. am I gonna biopsy that?
1: I wouldn't routinely biopsy right. that either if it's coming from the from the liver parenchyma, you more or less have your diagnosis. Now, if there's signs of metastatic disease or the tumor is unresectable, then I'm sure you could talk more about that, but that'd be beyond the
0: scope of the boards. Okay, and then and then last is neuroblastoma. Are you biopsying those?
1: Neuroblastoma is a is a little bit of a subject of debate, but given how complex staging and risk stratification is for neuroblastoma, biopsy has moved in the favor. Okay. Um, however, I'd say for the purposes of the boards, first of all playing odds, most likely you're going to get the claw sign. Mm -hmm. I would also be hesitant to biopsy
0: almost anything uh, in that regard. Okay. And then surgical resection for all these, right? I mean, if you can resect for the most part, besides maybe neuroblastoma is a little complicated.
1: Correct. Surgical resection definitely in Wilms tumor. Surgical resection for hepatoblastoma, provided that it's resectable and in the absence of metastatic disease. For neuroblastoma, again surgical resection is a mainstay as part of therapy but is not always upfront therapy especially given the aggressive nature of these tumors and their propensity to metastasize
0: great and I think we should say for all these anytime you start talking about tumors uh, you just want to drop the one line I'm going to take this talk about this patient in a multidisciplinary tumor board especially when we're talking about complex stuff like neuroblastoma you want to uh, load the boat, get as many people involved as you can. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to intussusception. So this is the most common cause of obstruction in young children, uh, six months to three years of age. So roughly 90% of these are uh, ileocolonic in nature, and 85% don't actually have an identifiable lead point, although the most common is is a Meckles. And so these patients, uh, uh, Joe, how do they present typically in intussusception? The classic story is colicky abdominal pain. It'll be a Toddler who's
1: kind of galloping around your office, looking fine, and then has just terrible pain where they curl their knees up to their chest, plus minus vomiting, plus minus current jelly stool. Those Ooh, are some sort of the classic current findings. jelly stool. Exactly. Right. How often do you really see that? Probably not that often. But the kid who's alternating between fine and excruciating pain in a susception should be at the front of your mind. Okay. And uh, physical exam. Again, you're really trying to rule out. Peritonitis and a reason to have to take the child emergently to the operating room, but this is pretty rare within a susception up front. Okay, um, Patrick, when do you talk a little bit
0: about uh, the workup and treatment? Yeah, so ultrasound. I'll uh, get an abdominal ultrasound, uh, so you can get labs your standard labs, abdominal ultrasound, and the keywords are target sign or a bullseye that that shows that intussuscepting bowel. Uh, for treatment. Uh, Probably for the board, you're going to recommend starting antibiotics preoperatively. If the patient's stable, no peritonitis, no uh, abnormal vital signs, uh, we're going to try to perform an air contrast enema. Okay, now how do you do that? The patient gets a rectal tube uh, and uh, air is instilled into the rectum up to, there's a manometer uh, attached to the tube, up to 120 millimeters of mercury. So it's successful the vast majority of the time, 90% of the time, this is actually successful. However, it is prone, uh, interception is prone to recurrence. Uh, and so on the boards, you know, you sound to, uh, to go uh, do an air contrast enema, it gets reduced. What happens when it recurs? You take them back. What happens when it recurs again? You take them back a third time. And the teaching, at least, or at least what uh, it may, you know, I guess for the board scenario specifically, take them back up to three times in 24 hours. Um, now, one thing: What if you're and you're there? They'll call, they, say they call the surgeon. You're going to the the fluoroscopy suite with them, or the radiology suite with them. And uh, there's a rupture. The belly is filled with air. 120 millimeters of mercury is the pressure. It's filled with air. What are you going to do? It's an emergency. You can decompress the abdomen with the needle. Okay. Um, now, what if uh, the patient? Uh, what if it recurs over and over again? Uh, they're going to need surgery. What if the patient presents and they're unstable and or peritonitic? they're going to need surgery. Uh, This would be uh, probably described as an open surgery. You identify the uh, intercepted area. Again, most commonly ileocolonic. Uh, If you can, you try to milk that bowel back. You don't pull on the bowel to pull it out. You milk it back from above. Um, If you're able to reduce it, great. If you can identify a lead point, it should be resected. If you can't reduce it or the bowel looks compromised, you're going to resect. Um, Anything else you want to add for that, Joe? No, I think that was pretty much perfect. Just so everyone's... Clear. This air
1: contrast uh, reduction is is really very successful. Not only 90% successful, but the odds of perforation with this, I believe, are less than 1%. So it's a safe procedure as well. And also in the operating room, just not to be fooled, the septum can be surprisingly long. Like the telescoping small bowel can extend past the hepatic flexure. So if they say that you just feel thickening, just make sure you kind of get the end before you start pushing it back. Yeah.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. Uh, Meckel's diverticulum. Uh, Joe, tell us about Meckel's.
1: So Meckel's diverticulum can, as Patrick pointed out earlier, be a presentation almost at any age, but is a frequently tested topic in the pediatric population. Um, some of you may remember the rule of twos, again, part of the, uh, the old absite studying. So this is a true diverticulum, i.e. it includes all the layers of the bowel wall. It's classically found about two feet from the ileocecal valve, usually about two inches long. They have about a two centimeter base. There's two types of ectopic mucosa associated with these, most often gastric, but can also be pancreatic. Sometimes they do not have ectopic mucosa. Um, And uh, the common presentation with these Meckel's diverticulum, at least that would probably be tested on on the oral boards would be painless, lower GI
0: bleeding in a child. Uh, You can also, uh, so, so recurrent insusception might be something to raise your, uh, uh, you know, uh, get you interested Um, or maybe a patient, uh, an older child who's had an appendectomy in the past and they come back with symptoms like an appendectomy that could present. And then certainly if you're going down the upper GI bleed uh, uh, or, or excuse me, GI bleed in general algorithm in the adult world, uh, you could say, you know, bring up a Meckles that, that could still happen later, later on. And so how do we, uh, how's this going to be diagnosed, Joe? So you could see a Meckles potentially in cross-sectional imaging, such as a CT
1: scan. If you're given the case of a child with, with painless lower GI bleeding, uh, a helpful study to get is a Meckles scan. Now a Meckles scan identifies gastric mucosis. So you would expect the stomach to light up on a Meckles scan. It's a nuclear medicine scan. But if you have ectopic gastric mucosa within a Meckles, you'll see a discrete location of this gastric mucosa, which corresponds to the Meckles. As you would guess, if you don't have ectopic gastric mucosa in your Meckles, i.e. it's either pancreatic or just doesn't have ectopic mucosa, it's not going to show up in your Meckles scan, but it's most common to have GI bleeding in the setting of having gastric mucosa present. which,
0: Which brings up a good point. So is the Meckles bleeding? What's bleeding?
1: Generally, what's bleeding is an ulcer adja- immediately adjacent to the Meckles. It's always impossible to tell exactly where. But in the small bowel, the intestinal, muc- intestinal mucosa, which doesn't have the normal you know, gastric mucosal defense mechanisms, as a result of the acid produced by the ectopic gastric mucosa.
0: Okay. Uh, so, how do you treat?
1: So, in symptomatic patients, whether it's bleeding and a susception pain, the treatment of choice is surgical resection. And like with most things, this can be performed either laparoscopically or via laparotomy. You can perform a simple diverticulectomy, uh, stapled or handsome, Basically, you're coming across the diverticulum itself without doing a formal small bowel resection. I'd say most commonly we do this with the stapler. This is The only key thing to realize is if you're going to do that, make sure you do so transversely. If you do so longitudinally, you might imagine that you have a propensity to narrow the intestinal lumen uh-huh. now if you do perform a diverticulectomy and you think you
0: have narrowed the lumen you can always perform a segmental formal small bowel resection yeah and something that may come up actually it may, it may not come up too because you know incidental finding whether it's a kid or adult uh or maybe a child middle age versus older adult what do you do with that incidental mechal you see during surgery um uh, there's a lot of arguments for what to do one way or the other. Um, you could choose to take it out uh, uh, prophylactically, especially if they're young. Um, other features that may make you want to take it out, or as if it's a long diverticulum more than two centimeters long, if there's palpable abnormalities of tissue within the diverticulum, whatever that might mean. I don't know the exact right answer for that, but you, you get to decide, uh, Joe. Uh, so, omphalocele and gastritis, really quick. These are not. Uh, these are advanced. Uh, 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 these are advanced diseases and conditions according to the score curriculum. But let's give a, I want to give a real quick overview of omphalocele and gastroschisis.
1: Yeah, we'll get the 10,000-foot view of, of these uh, neonatal congenital abdominal wall defects. So both omphalocele and gastroschisis, gastroschisis are defects of the neonatal abdominal wall. The difference is how you manage them and exactly what they're lined with. So an is basically right at the umbilicus it has a peritoneal lining to it. And as a result, there's no surgical emergency with an omphalocele. These kids can essentially be managed non-operatively. You just protect this thin peritoneal covering, usually with topical dressings like you'd manage a burn, things like sylvanine, abacitracin, xeriform, etc. And then you wait and you live the fight another day. The important thing to remember about omphalocele is that they're frequently associated with other congenital anomalies, about fifty percent of the time. So you want to do karyotyping, you want to look for other associated defects, etc. Gastroschisis, on the other hand, about ninety percent of the time occur in isolation with other any other congenital defects. But this is a case where just to the right of the umbilicus you have a fascial defect, and you do not have covering of the small bowel. So the small bowel during development has been exposed to the amniotic fluid, and that can cause varying degrees of Uh, intestinal irritation. At the time of birth, the goal is to try to reduce this bowel back into the abdomen and then to close the defect. There's numerous ways to do this that really are beyond the scope of the boards. Sometimes this isn't possible because of a lack of abdominal domain, in which case you have the option of placing uh, a silo uh, to allow that abdomen to kind of grow and then gently over the course of days, reduce the ball back into the abdomen. Okay. I think that'd be about the extent of what they would be looking yeah. for on the boards. For Some these basic defects. knowledge.
0: All right, let's talk uh, the two procedures, uh, core procedures uh, that uh, we want to talk about to include pediatric umbilical hernia repair. Uh, so for this, we want to examine the patient, get to get to know the size of the defect, whether there's bowel that's incarcerated, strangulated, etc. cetera. Certainly that'd be a surgical emergency. Uh, for the most part, if it's not, we're reassuring the parents, uh, most of these umbilical hernias close, uh, by the age of five. And so that's kind of the, the age at which you wait. If there's no issues and asymptomatic, et cetera, you wait till five and see if they're closed. If it hasn't at that point, you can jump forward with surgery, um, the to, to fix it, this is a simple a simple procedure primary repair so local anesthesia uh infra or super umbilical curvilinear incision you're going to dissect the umbilical stalk and hernia sac free and reduce it uh you're going to free up the uh, uh, edges of the fascia and you can repair with uh, interrupted uh, suture maybe something like two O pds um or maybe even smaller i guess in a, okay what would you say what would you use pds ficrol
1: that's probably close
0: I'd say 2 0 would be reasonable. All right, uh, Joe, uh, last thing here. We're going to talk about a pediatric uh, inguinal hernia. Uh, how would you go about, uh, or I guess, how would you go about managing that up front and then also the surgical treatment?
1: Yeah, so uh, unlike umbilical hernias, pediatric inguinal hernias tend not to close on their own and therefore require surgical management. Uh, a couple things that uh, are different about pediatric inguinal hernias versus those in adult. one is that they're pretty much universally indirect hernias because this is a congenital defect it's not a weakening of the uh, of the abdominal wall. Um, and the other thing is you're not going to want to put mesh into a, a little baby or even child um, who's going to grow and development develop while the mesh obviously is not. Uh, like with any hernia, your first step in workup and management is to determine if the hernia is reducible uh, versus incarcerated mm-hmm. Reducible hernias. Um, while they do require repair, uh, this is not any kind of urgency or emergency as you would imagine. They can be fixed in the elective setting.
0: So, what if the on the boards they give you a, a, a child that doesn't have any clear, frank signs of a dead or, or threatened bowel and you want to reduce it? And the an examiner says, Joe, tell me how you're going to reduce this hernia
1: yeah so first of all you can be more aggressive about reducing these hernias in kids than in adults i think in adults most of us are probably taught that if you're beyond like six hours or so that you would suspect strangulation be taking the patient to the operating and room cut down on top of it take a look at it, uh-huh. et, cetera, et cetera. in kids many would say up to 24 hours some would argue even more than that that's not to say that you just assume everything inside was perfectly fine But uh, you can be a little more aggressive up front with with, uh, reducing these hernias. Um, You want to examine uh, both groins. Some helpful techniques in terms of reducing these hernias. First of all, place the child in a little bit of Trendelenburg position. Placing ice over the hernia defect actually helps quite a bit. Honestly, the most helpful thing is having adequate pain control and even some sedation. So what do you give a kid? Uh, Anywhere from ketamine to fentanyl. Um I've kind of used all of the above, whatever usually whatever our, my emergency room colleagues are comfortable with giving. But once they relax that abdominal, relax that abdominal wall, then you're oftentimes able to get it in. And the kind of technique is to actually um first of all check for a descended testicle, gently pull this down so you're not mistaking a testicle <laughs> for <from> a hernia. <laughs> bye bye. Believe it or not, it's in a little baby, it's harder to tell than you would think. And then to basically push that that hernia and the bowel up over like from the scrotum uh, up over the the pelvic brim there uh, and uh, through uh, through the canal
0: back into the belly. Okay. Um, and then, you know, if you had concern for bowel, you want to observe this patient, or excuse me, if you had concern for ischemic bowel uh, or, or compromised bowel, you want to observe the patient, and you, you'd you repair the hernia during that same admission? Frequently, yes. It
1: depends a little bit on the situation. If this wasn't out for very long, or if the kid never really had any distension, emesis, et cetera, and family really wants to go home and repair it in the elective setting, that's not unreasonable. Okay. But I think, especially for the purpose of the boards, it'd be safest to then wash the child maybe overnight. Make sure that they're clinical, clinically stable. Do serial
0: abdominal exams and plan to fix it within the next day or two. All right. So taking us home then, inguinal uh, uh, hernia repair, there's lots of different ways to do it, right? It's certainly laparoscopic and some other interesting techniques that I have long forgotten to do. But we're going to describe an open repair today, right? Yeah, it, I think, uh, you know, maybe,
1: for- maybe if these were the pediatric surgical boards, we'd go into detail on laparoscopic repair because okay. that's, that, that's all the rage nowadays. But an open repair, I think is still going to be the mainstay of the oral board. So it's actually not all that different up front from your procedure in an adult. Uh, You're gonna make an incision in the suprapubic crease, kind of just off the pubic tubercle, heading just superior uh, to the inguinal ligament out laterally. You don't need a super generous incision, basically as much as you would need for your exposure. You're gonna carry that dissection down to the sub-Q, incise scarpus fascia, you'll come to your external oblique fascia. You're gonna incise your external oblique fascia and just like in an adult inguinal hernia repair, You have to be mindful of the ilioinguinal nerve, which is going to be lying underneath. It's just going to be smaller in this case, but you need to make sure to preserve and protect that. At this point, you should come to your spermatic cord. You're going to identify your cord structures. You're going to identify the hernia sac. The hernia sac, you guys may remember, is going to be medial to the cord structures. You're going to get around all of that, uh, and then you're going to carefully dissect the sac away from the cord structures. Now, in the case of a reduced hernia, this is obviously much easier to do, and you can open your sac. You can make sure that there's no remaining intra contents. If that's the case, the mainstay, like the, act- the, the key step in your hernia repair is a high ligation of the hernia sac. So once you've completely dissected it free of your cord structures, basically at the level of the internal ring, you're going to twist the sac upon itself and do a suture ligation, usually with Vicryl, and dunk this back into the abdomen. That's basically your repair you're because you're top. not using mesh. You're not really doing any kind of complex
0: tissue repair usually. Okay. So what if on the boards they say, uh, so you weren't able to reduce the hernia and the uh, small bottle is dead. It's ischemic and it's, uh, you open up the sack and you see ischemic gut. What are you going to do? Yeah, what are so, your options?
1: Right. So in this case, once again, it's fairly similar to to what you'd be faced with in an adult with a similar presentation. So you have the option of dealing with this through your groin incision now if it's already incarcerated slash slash strangulated it's probably going to be a little bit difficult for you to pull healthy bowel through the groin incision without making the inguinal floor a little little bit bigger you can incise the inguinal floor Mm -hmm. uh, and try to perform a resection through the groin that's acceptable as long as you have healthy bowel at that point and are confident and then can reduce that you are going to have to perform some sort of tissue repair afterwards kind of of the bassini type Mm -hmm. uh now, if you're unable to pull this bowel up, even with that technique, through the groin, you also have the option of an abdominal counter incision,
0: basically an X-lap. Sure. Okay. Good. All right, Joe, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, can I say it? You can say it. Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.